I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Lisko. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, the podcast kid. That's such a bad joke, but it's like, it's just, I mean, it feels right. It's there. It's it's the podcast kid, sure. Uh, With us today is Jamel Bowie, columnist for the New York Times, to talk about Clint Eastwood's masterpiece, Unforgiven. Thank you so much for being here, Jamel. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so, Jamel, I'm I'm curious about your history with this film. I mean, did you see this film in '92? Did you see it around '92? <laughs> I uh, I would have been um, five years old in 1992. <laughs> so I so I no, did, so you did. I did not see Unforgiven back in '92. I saw this movie for the first time. I want to say I was still living in D.C. So I want to say either 2015 or 2016, probably 2015, as I'm thinking about it. But um, I uh, I loved it when I saw it the first time. I uh, am kind of a big Clint fan. Uh, I, I really like his work as a director. I feel like people find this surprising about me because like, oh, well, Jamel, you know, he's like a lefty. Obviously, he holds Clint Eastwood in contempt. I do not. Um He's a director, actually, I really like. <laughs> you know, I he's. It's interesting because I feel like for the longest time, politically, Clint Eastwood felt a little bit sort of amorphous, and then it's sort of you know. He's yeah. always been very libertarian, and that has sort of 
gotten more terrifying across his career. Sure. But like, sure, sure, you sure. know, like this movie, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, this is just a movie about how like the only person who can solve society is like just like a good man. Like, and he's not yeah. a good man, but like a man yeah. who's like less bad than other people, I guess, would be the way to put it. Um, or acknowledges his yeah. shortcomings, I guess, to some degree. I, I'm interested to hear. I also like Eastwood. I, I don't like all his films, but who possibly could? But I'm interested to hear what you respond to in his work, uh, Jamel. Um, so what? I think Unforgiven is a film that kind of encapsulates this from the extent, because I don't think it actually is so much a only, a, a you know, this singular good man can solve the problem. Um, I think, especially in his later career, which is weird. Okay, I got to say, this movie is very much sort of like revisionist Western, revisionist Clint Eastwood revi- taking a revisionist take on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can be like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, this is like he had this, he's had this like reevaluation of his own mythos in the back half of his career. But he's been like making movies for uh, 30 years since. And so it's like, it, in a funny way, it's sort of like, well, this is just what he does now. Yeah. Um, like Stay the old, <laughs> the older stuff, the pre, the pre unforgiven stuff feels like a different guy, uh, uh, and then post unforgiven. But I think one thing he's interested in is just sort of like the, um, the, oh, one of the things he's interested in is the deleterious effect of violence on someone's like identity psyche like sense of integrity sort of like these characters he seems to really dig into um money in this uh chris kyle and american sniper um uh the um uh his character in his most recent film cry macho even um are these people who are sort of marked by violence and it's sort of it's like destroyed them um, and they are trying to negotiate that, and they find themselves in situations where the violence once again becomes used. Like in them, forgiven the violence, his ability to do violence is becomes necessary and useful. But it's always portrayed as sort of like, oh, this is the worst thing that could happen to this guy. Mm-hmm. Like the best thing that could have happened to Will Money is that he didn't go, he didn't try to get this bounty at all. That he just stayed home with his kids, um, yeah. and as soon as he left to do it it basically put him on a trajectory to relapse almost like an addict right mm-hmm. into his worst possible self yeah yeah i actually i think american sniper is an interesting comparison point because i saw that uh that was like a big movie at vox for obvious reasons cuz like the co- conversation around that movie was like what does this say about foreign policy which like i mean you can have that conversation but i'm not sure it's like that was the Vox conversation to have about American Sniper, though a lot of yeah. publications said that. And I like went and saw it sort of through that lens. And I was like, this movie's weirder than that. It's, it, yeah. I still think it has some pretty big flaws, but like there's a fake baby in it. But, um, <laughs> but like it, it's like the, the way that it depicts Chris Kyle's like inability to give up this violence, like almost his addiction to it. Uh, Eastwood is so interested in that idea and like, uh, I think Un- Unforgiven is my favorite of his movies, which is like the least hot take of all time. But like, I think it's because this movie digs into that the most. I remember at the time he said he was never going to make another Western. I didn't actually check this, but it's... He did. He did? He said he wasn't going to act uh, or direct another movie, in fact. Uh, oh, like, wow. He kind of made it seem like this was <laughs> this was his hat tip. And then, you know, yeah. that's, that's, later. that's the thing. It's sort of like, yeah, I'm going out 
on this deconstruction of the idea of Clint Eastwood. And then it's a, it's a huge hit. It's like, it's maybe one of the most successful things he's ever done. Yep. And he's like, oh, I guess, I guess not. <laughs> I mean, he also, the man loves attention as well. I mean, yes. it does, it does feel as though, I mean, in the, in the research I was doing on this film, just, just reading about how, like, he never thought he'd win an Oscar. He was convinced that that was just never going to happen for him. And then this movie comes out, it's a big hit. It's starting to seem like that's possible. And he was with Francis Fisher at the time, who plays the sort of the, the lead prostitute, if that's the right way to put it. I guess sort of the, the, the brothel, um, the brothel, brothel. Adam. Brother, madam, sure. And she was pregnant at the time, and he was like, "Don't tell anyone you're pregnant because it'll take away from my Oscar campaign." Like, just, just all sorts of weird. Like, he's just, he's a weird guy. I mean, he's got like, on the Wikipedia page, it says he has at least like thirteen children. They're not even really sure how many kids the guy has. It's kind of amazing. He's, no, he's, he's, you know, I, I don't want to make this like let's talk about Eastwood's entire career. But one thing I found really funny about The Mule, a movie I yes. really like, mm-hmm. is that. That whole thing seems to be Eastwood being like, you know what? I'm terrible to women. I'm like awful to women. (laughs) I'm a terrible man to women and I deserve Mm -hmm. to suffer for it. (laughs) But I also deserve to have two threesomes. Yes. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Don't don't get me wrong. Women should sleep with me. I don't know why balloons just showed up, but that's that's what happened. It's because you said Um, two threesomes. That's the Zoom trigger. It makes the balloon. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I I my my wife was pregnant when I was up for a Hugo Award, and I asked her not to tell anyone she was pregnant because I didn't want to just. And then I lost. Obviously. Oh wow. Um, I I to to go sort of back to what you were saying about the um what you were both saying about sort of the the weight of killing which feels is very much sort of a theme in this film of not being able to get over something like that. Um, and and even with sort of uh, the kid character who talks a big game, talks about how he's killed all these people, but he hasn't. And then when he actually does, it like really fucks him up as it should. Um, I, I just, it, it does feel like on a grander scale, this film is about sort of sins as well. And like not being able to get over any bad deeds that you've done. Mm-hmm. Um it's also about older people, right? I mean, most of these people are quite old and they're looking back on their years of yes. Yeah, it's so funny to think about like Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman in this movie playing the old guys, and now they're both still act, they're both still making movies. It's just it's yeah. what a world we live in. <laughs> I mean, by the way, I-, I would argue they both kind of look the same. I mean, it's been a long time. Clint's looking a little. You can tell. You can tell they look older, but it feels like they look like ten years older. It's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's. I mean, this movie is just very much of us sort of being haunted by the past, Um, which I feel, you know, to your point, Jamal, about how this seemed like Clint's way out, right, as a career, his way of being like this is a perfect kind of grace note to a career of playing guys like this. Um, and then he's just kept on going, playing guys like this and making movies about this. I you know. I watched his 1982 movie, Honky Talk Man, earlier mm-hmm. this year because I was doing a, a different podcast about country music movies. And that is weirdly kind of a precursor to Unforgiven. It's okay. a, he, it's like one of the few movies he actually dies in. This is apparently a thing that he never does on screen. But like sure. it is another movie that is like I've lived this hard life. I've heard a lot of people. In that movie, he's a country western singer, so violence doesn't really get involved. But it's very much like I have hurt the people in my life, the yeah. women and the, the relatives and family. And it's just, just like he's fascinated by this theme. 
every Clint Eastwood movie kind of tells on himself a little bit. And I think that's why he's such a compelling figure. Yeah. Yeah. He's also, you know, the thing that kind of hit me watching it this time was how economic the filmmaking is here. And I don't, I, I don't, I just mean in terms of like the cleanliness, the storytelling. I mean, obviously the man shoots movies very quickly. He's made a lot of them. He made this film in 37 days, which is. That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like not a lot of takes. He's just like, so I, I really feel like you can see it just in the way that the script is too. Like, it's just very, very sharp and clean and knows what he, it's telling. He sort of famously doesn't do a lot of script notes either. Like, no. you know, people don't really draft for him. And like this script is airtight. Like it's looking at, I was what this is the first time I've watched it since I became a working screenwriter. And Thank I was you. watching it through that lens. And I was like, Oh my God, every scene in this, even though it's like kind of a like shaggy dog story in a certain way, because the, the uh, English uh, English Bob. Yeah, that that kind of doesn't amount to anything, but like it's also like so important to the overall themes. It's it's a really like gives us a lot of depth into Bill, right? Like it gives us more on Little Bill. That I always say English Bob and Little Bill. That's the note I would have had. Change one of their names. (laughs) Fix that. He actually only had one note from what I read, which was that the um the the text that scrolls at the beginning and the end of the film was originally VO mm-hmm. and he was like actually just make a text which I think he is he kind of a whatever done note. that he could have just done that in the edit Clint but I also kind of like that it's text I agree with him that if it was voiceover I don't think it would have been as effective um, reading those words uh, which are poetic and also like like the fact that this film ends with basically him being like I don't know why anyone would want to be around Will bad dude mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's just kind of, kind of so. Normal. So I think the other thing about the um, the text being something that you read is that the actual first spoken words you hear in the film are um, the I guess the saloon keeper, the innkeeper with the gun to the head of the one of the cowboys. Um, I forget what exactly he said. It's something vulgar, right? So it's sort of, sort oh, of it's like, awful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's sort of like it, that. If the opening, if the opening. Um, shot of someone kind of like i think it's just bar- clint burying his wife creates the impression that this is going to be sort of an elegiac movie the fact that the first words you hear and the first reaction you see is this like attempted rape and murder followed by the innkeeper threatening to kill this cowboy it's like no this is going to be a movie about the kind of men these men actually were yeah 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 i think a lot about I think that the thing about revisionist Westerns and watching this, like it came out while I was alive. I didn't see it in theaters. I didn't see it until I was in my twenties, probably, but like thinking about it through the lens of, I knew what Westerns were and I knew like the Western archetypes because I grew up at the very tail end of this era when like Westerns were still kind of in our cultural ether and like now they kind of aren't. And I wonder if the revisionist Western has just become the Western for a lot of people, because it seems like the only one that gets made anymore. I don't know how I'm not saying we should make more traditional Westerns because, but certainly like, you know, the, 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 I'm tired of the comparisons of superhero movies to Westerns because they're very different in genres in many ways, but there certainly is that element of like, it's so set in stone that there needs to be a revisionist take, but in a certain way, the revisionist take always becomes the standard take. I'm making no sense. No, this, no, no, this no, makes... no, I, I, yeah, no, go, I, please, go I, ahead. I was just going to very quickly say that I think that like the Coen brothers, if you look at true grit or you look at no country for old men, mm-hmm. those are, 
you know, these sort of deconstructed versions of the Western. I don't know that a, a clean Western would exist today, but Jamal, what were you going to say? No, I was just, I was just about to say that it seems to me that sort of like, yes, most modern Westerns are revisionist Westerns, whether that is something that is a period piece, like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, a movie I love, by the way, that like, I feel like doesn't get enough. It's beautiful. You know, it's, it's yeah. And a wonderful score. Anyway, um, the 310 to Yuma remake is also very much like revisionist Western stylistically. Um, And then you have like the kind of more like the contemporary Western. So you mentioned No Country for Old Men, but Hell or High Water. Um, yep. It's another one, another one of these. They're all kind of like in that revisionist vibe. The kind of, <clears throat> the kind of like triumphant, you know, um, uh, lone hero, you know, um, uh, native others who are a threat. Some, 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 you know, Anglo, person who represents disorder that needs to be like corralled and controlled that kind of thing that no one really makes anymore um it yeah it doesn't doesn't really and what's funny to me is that it's not only that no one really makes it anymore but when when people like the revisionist western has become the western to such an extent that people will look back at older revisionist westerns like the man who shot liberty valance or mm-hmm. any of anthony mann's westerns and be like oh that's a great like classic western it's like well no that's like a re- that's like very explicitly a revisionist western mm-hmm. but we've just lost we've lost like the cultural language of sort of like the like a like a like a stagecoach right like a, like yeah. a john ford a classic yeah. john ford western I got him. So, would you say that John Ford and like Sergio Leone are these sort of the 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 you know tip of the spear when it comes to the classic? I, I'm not a Western guy, so that's why I'm. I was gonna I was guy. gonna get to that in a second, Phil. Uh, Just being honest. <laughs> I think yes, obviously, but like it's kind of like the first half of Ford's career because like yes. the Searchers, for instance, is a revisionist Western. Like, I got into a long argument about that movie a while back, and sort of like. Uh, yeah it's depiction of races problematic from a modern standpoint but it like at the time it was like talking about like this a topic in a way that literally no movie had really attempted at that scale at least i'm sure there were smaller films but yeah it's like it's like ford and then the westerns of howard hawks and you know obviously there are tons and tons and tons of like serials and like those sorts of things that were feeding into this and there was just so much of it that like it became inescapable but yes like all these guys that like made the great classical Westerns then made movies that deconstructed the Westerns for like the second half of their careers. It's such an interesting, like, and I think Leone like is also kind like, obviously his form becomes a new type of Western, but at the time it was also like, what can we do here? That's revisionist in the sense of stripping something down instead of deconstructing right. it. But it's, that is a kind of revisionism. <clears throat> well, I'm I'm also curious because you, you brought up race and I, and this film you know, doesn't talk about race, really. I mean, I'm curious, in fact, in in the script, whether Ned was actually written to be Black or not, because it is just interesting that the lack of discussion about that. I mean, do you guys have thoughts on that? I, uh, I was thinking about, like, I was bracing for this movie to be worse, like, overtly right. worse, to be clear. Like, right. and I was also bracing for it to be, like, obviously there's extreme cruelty to women in the, like, first Ten minutes, but I was bracing yeah. for a lot more of that, and there just isn't. It's like 
I, I'm obviously it's because the David Webb people script was written in like 1972 and like Clint yeah. just hung on to it for a long time. Yeah. But I think there's, I don't know. I think there's something, I think there's something interesting in, in Morgan Freeman playing Ned in how the movie, uh, uh, doesn't both does and doesn't examine it because like i don't know how much clint eastwood is aware of what he's touching on in especially in the immediate wake of the rodney king uh uh beating with with uh little bill not little bob with little bill uh uh flogging uh ned to death it's it's a brutal horrible sequence and eastwood understands that and i don't know like if he's like even thinking about this other component of it Yeah, I even the the so the the Ned like Ned's race is never really remarked on in the film, even by characters that you you are anticipating they're going to remark on it. So the kid, you're always like he's always sneering and always like, and there's a sense of like sort of like maybe maybe the actor is portraying is sort of like. Uh, 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 just under the surface prejudice. It's not being expressed out of respect for, for Will. Um, but it seems like he should. It seems like you know, if anyone's going to say use a slur, it's going to be that guy. But there's none of that in the film. And part of me does wonder if 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 Clint just wasn't particularly attentive to it. If the character wasn't written as a black man, and so because nothing about the character necessitates him being black. He just sort of just happens to be a black guy. Um, you know, when you look at the historical West, there are lots of, you know, what we call black cowboys, like black people are very much in the mix. Um, and, you know, this is actually kind of interesting, sort of like, you know, explicit separation doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't really imposed until what we think of as like civilization pops up. It's sort of like, while it's the frontier, People were kind of like loosey goosey about this stuff, but once it seems like, oh, this is going to be a settled place, then it's like, okay, well, now we have to have racial segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, giving you a sense of how people understood segregation to like what how they understood it as a, as a as a as a social structure. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's tough. It's tough to say if Eastwood sees the resonance i mean i'm sure he's aware of the resonance of ned being flogged like that's it's you you'd have to be a dummy right to (laughs) not to not get that but um there doesn't appear to be like any comment it's just sort of like Mm -hmm. perhaps perhaps the reason little bill is 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 flogging ned and not any of the other two is because ned is black and like he feels he's little bill feels like if i can get one of them that's the one i can get but then also maybe not you know it's just it's not really it's not it doesn't appear to be a part of the story in a really in an interesting way like the absence of it to me makes it as interesting as anything else yeah yeah and the absence of his death as well we don't actually see it on screen that's right is also interesting um you know it's it's more of a gut punch quite frankly that it's told to him after the fact than and and the viewer not knowing that either um it's and then seeing his corpse on display and the sort of the indignity of that, um, I think is re I mean, obviously it's really powerful, but it just, I think there's, there's choices being made, like mm-hmm. cognizant choices of storytelling and, and, and what he's trying to say with it. But 
Yes, uh, and like not to return to the script, but like you see that also in the script for Blade Runner, which David Webb Peoples also wrote, which is like a thing happens off screen. Someone is told about it. Then they go see the aftermath. And like, I love that kind of storytelling, but you're so often like steered away from it in, in screenwriting yeah. seminars or whatever. And like, I, but I think this movie really shows how much power can reside in those images and and jamil you're talking about the the ways that uh the wild west or whatever we call it now had like sort of different social mores because also like um uh that was a world where like women had the vote earlier like there's all this stuff that's like society is like very different out and then more people move in and it's like and this movie is is depicting that shift like because there's the big big Little River, Big Whiskey, uh, is is I know I watched this movie last night. Yeah. I know what's happening. Uh, is uh, is this like town? That, and it's yeah. the the gap between 1878 when he buries his wife and 1880 when the movie takes place. It's like oh, this thing has happened. Society is here, and now it's it brings with it uh, terrible sheriffs who actually were previously outlaws, but now are like right. the law. It's it's interesting. Right now, now are there to bring now it's, it's a, okay. they're now there to bring order, but it's a very particular kind of like personalized patriarchal kind of order, right? They don't really represent the state so much because the state is impersonal. They represent sort of personalized rule and the creation of order over this society. Um, I don't have it dictatorial in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is sort of orthogonal to our conversation, but one of the things that that I found interesting about killers of the flower moon, which Mm -hmm. takes place in sort of like the post frontier um, Oklahoma is that like half the story is about the replacement of personalized rule, uh, personalized patriarchal authority with the authority of the state. Um, Mm -hmm when the Bureau of Investigation shows up, it's like now the state is entering the picture. Uh, and I, I find that so much so so much of the work that takes place in this late 19th century, early 20th century period is in a lot of ways about that transition from the rule of a single man to that of a bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in this world and well, not in... Wyoming, but I grew up in South Dakota, which is right next door. And it's, it very much was like the after effects of that shift were everywhere. They were like in our cultural DNA, at just as like you were sort of raised with like, well, and as you want, like a lot of people wonder why those states are so rabidly Republican. And it's often because they still deeply resent the state for coming in and imposing any kind of order. Even like the the deeply flawed order that we possess within the United States and always have is like resented for existing within those spaces. Um, I want to give just a little bit of context to half an hour. <laughs> Phil, into you're this episode. so good. <laughs> I'm you're trying. So good at I'm doing the best that I track. can, guys. Um, when prostitute Delilah Fitzgerald is disfigured by a pair of uh, cowboys in Big Whiskey, Wyoming, her fellow brothel workers post a reward for their murder. Um, much to the displeasure of Sheriff Little Bill, played by Gene Hackman, who does not allow vigilantism in his town. Two groups of gunfighters, one led by aging former bandit William Money, played by Clint Eastwood. The other, led by Florid English Bob, uh, played by Richard Harris, come to collect the reward, chasing, uh, sorry, clashing with each other and the sheriff. Unforgiven opened on August 7th, 1992, in first place against Death Becomes Her, Raising Cain, Three Ninjas, A League of Their Own, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. 
It would go on to make $159 million on a $14 million budget. Uh, it's got 96% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 93 from audiences. Roger Ebert gave the film four stars, said it has the elements of a crime picture, but the freedom of an art film. Unforgiven 2 uses uh, a genre as a way to study human nature, that implacable moral balance in which good eventually silences evil at the heart of the Western and Eastwood is not shy about saying so. Should also be said that Unforgiven won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Gene Hackman, uh, and Best Film Editing. It was also nominated for Best Actor for Clint Eastwood, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography. Um, the cinematography I feel in this film is stunning. This movie is beautiful looks to look beautiful. at. Yeah, um, I would argue it's better looking than the winner. A river runs through it. Listen, <laughs> listen. I'm imagining a double feature of Unforgiven and Three Ninjas. That would be quite the day. <laughs> there you go. What's, I was what, just what's first though. <laughs> I, I was just thinking. I mean, it's it's so striking to read sort of list of releases like in the yep. in in the early 90s at the very least because it's sort of like oh these are like anyone could go to the movies that weekend yep. and be like yep. oh there's something for me i'm a kid and i want to see kid shit i can see the three ninjas i am uh i'm a, a little a little weird little freak and i want to see like a little weird little freak movie i can go see raising cane um <laughs> uh you know i want to <laughs> uh yeah. i like that it's movie. true uh but yeah. that's that's like that the audience it's a depaul that's it's a depaul it's, it's the audience yeah. for that is like little freaks um yeah, for sure <laughs> it, this is also august 7th you know what i mean like this is the first weekend in august this was I, and i i mentioned this on on uh on the uh online last night the teaser poster for this film which is i would argue groundbreaking is just the back of Clint Eastwood. He's holding a gun. It says Unforgiven August 7th. He, it's literally a Batman poster. It just isn't a Batman poster. Because he, was, he, he was such an icon that they could just right. do that. They could just yeah. be like, look at this guy. He's got a yeah. gun again. What do you, how it's do you feel incredible. about that? Um, and it's like you know, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just, I just, I'm looking, I'm looking yeah. at this weekend again. I just, just to continue this because it's, <laughs> yes, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So I want to go see like an adult prestige drama, Unforgiven. I want to see sort of like a weird kind of comedy, Death Becomes Her. I want to see just a weird movie, Raising Cain, kid movie, Three Ninjas, family friendly movie a league of their own and then below that right you know maybe i go see mo money more problems maybe I, maybe i go see sister act you know maybe i go see honey i blew up the kid like there's there's something there for everyone yeah. and this is just like a typical it's like it's a pretty typical weekend i i'm th this is me i'm not apologizing to phil but i'm admitting i was wrong about something when we started oh. this project because this podcast started out even about the movies of 1999 an iconic film year and i was not the host at that time and i'm still not i'm a special guest host and your normal yeah, host is the course, podcast kid but uh the uh uh but 1992 i was like phil why are you doing 1992 but it is this kind of last gasp uh before franchise filmmaking really started to take over aggressively in the next few years because by the time you get to 99 a lot of those movies you just listed yeah. would still were, were increasingly getting difficult to get made and now like you couldn't you'd, like they'd all be disney plus series disney right. plus should make a raising cane series that's the conclusion of this. Yeah. <laughs> but i but but to both your points you know i would even argue that by 99 i mean 97 even i mean we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes but you know 93 is jurassic park you know what i mean and which which feels like a game changer and once special effects become um 
more manageable or more plausible and you can start actually doing that sort of stuff you stop seeing movies made for adults and you start seeing movies that are made for sort of these four quadrant things i mean we did an episode jamel on uh, uh basic instinct which made 400 million dollars uh in 1992 which is just an insane thing to think about <laughs> it's just crazy it's crazy to think hey this uh this this horny this horny european movie <laughs> Uh, gonna get a general release, and everyone's gonna see it. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it is it's a different world. It really is. So, yes, more? Yeah, I gotta ask the question. You are you're not a Western person, so uh, yes. how how do you feel about Unforgiven? Oh, if you're I, not I, if you're not a Western fan and you're watching yeah. this, do the revisionist aspects like obviously you know they're there, but do they like hit in the same way? Well, they don't hit in the same way because I don't have the the, the knowledge necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think that you know, as a a, a student of film, I, it's hard not to kind of look at this and be like, "Well, this is clearly breaking a lot." Of, you know, what I mean, there's a lot of deconstruction going on here. I'm obviously aware of the iconography of of Clint Eastwood in and of itself. Um, I, as I was watching it. I was hit by a lot of things. I think Clint Eastwood is really, really good in this movie. Like, I think he gives a tremendous performance. I think that Clint Eastwood as an actor is has a relatively narrow range, and I don't say that as a as a bad thing. I think he's very good at very specific things. Um, but I watched this, and the end of the film when he shows up, and it's raining, and he's got this gun, and he looks like a fucking badass, and the conflicted feelings you have as a viewer of, like, he seems like a hero in this moment, and yet this moment is rife with so much, you know, complexity and, and awfulness, and no one in this scene is good, and they all kind of deserve to die. Um, it is feels antithetical in my brain to what I assume the Western right. is supposed to be about. And that is interesting, because I do feel like, like, I've seen Stagecoach and a couple of Howard Hawks. Like, I'm not, sure. like, a scholar of the genre, but, like, it is... Sure. It is interesting the degree to which that iconography still lodges in your brain yeah. as either either I think an American or like a pop culture person or like a movie person. Just like, you know, it's it's in the back there. Um, I actually just checked this because I had remembered this mm. and uh, Ebert and Siskel both gave it really mixed reviews. Like Ebert's, Ebert upgraded it when Came he added it to the, it, But like yeah. he gave it two and a half stars on initial release. He gave it a very mild thumbs up on the show and Siskel like kind of hated it and spent really? like spent like most of that award season complaining about Unforgiven and just being sure. like, why are people, why do people like this movie? I fucking love those guys. They just like yeah. had the weirdest <laughs> opinions sometimes. I feel like Ebert actually, I mean, because he had his whole great movies books, right, that he would put out. Right. And I feel like he would sort of revisit mm-hmm. things that maybe mm-hmm. he did. Siskel didn't really do that. Yeah, yeah. Ebert uh, added this to his great movies list in nine, in 2002. And every time he did that, he just gave it four stars. And it's like, yeah. I, you know, so, but his great movies piece is amazing. But like his original review, which has been pulled from the internet, was kind of like, I don't know about this. This is, this <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, to, just to, to very briefly talk about sort of the development of this film, it was not a Clint Eastwood film originally. It was a Francis Ford Coppola movie. He had the rights to it um, prior to uh, to Eastwood getting it in the early 80s. Uh, he wanted John Malkovich to play uh, Will. And at one point, Malkovich was asked about it. And he's like, who wants to see that movie? Like, why does anyone <laughs> want to see that movie? Which I think is kind of amazing. I don't know what that movie is, but 
how old was Malkovich at that time? Like that's I mean this obvious, is the eighties. Ob- obviously you could do this movie with with a guy in his thirties. Like you really could. You could. Sure, but like sure. it's it gains so much from being about a guy in his East was in his sixties at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, Malkovich Mal- 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 would have been in his thirties, yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. It's weird. But I, I also think that, you know, Eastwood's talked about this a lot, but that, like, once the script was brought to his attention, he bought the rights to it, and he wanted it to sit on it for a while because he wanted to be of an age that it made sense. He wanted to be, you know, older and haggard. And, and um, but then he obviously uh, comes around to it, as I mentioned, sh- shot in 30, 39 days, coming in four days ahead of schedule. Oh, my God. God bless this man. <laughs> um, <laughs> just unbelievable. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the, the screenwriter, Emily, David Webb, uh, peoples who, uh, insanely good batting average, just like everything he does gold. I mean, it's pretty crazy. He obviously blade runner. He does this. Um, he talks about how he was inspired by taxi driver and Glendon Swarthout's novel, the shootist, which I don't know of, but, um, I don't know if I've uh, never read read that (laughs) or know of that. Um, And then he writes 12 monkeys with his wife. Mm -hmm. um, A great movie. Uh, Yeah. He just, just a pretty phenomenal screenwriter. Just, just amazing stuff. I don't know. I mean, Jeremy Irons was apparently considered for English Bob, which would have been been fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Richard Harris is great in this, um, but and there's something about Richard Harris and Gene Hackman being of similar ages that I, I don't, but I guess Jeremy Irons is pretty old at this point. But I mean, it wouldn't, I guess Jeremy Irons would have been in his 40s. Given what he was doing at the time, maybe not psychosexual enough for him. <laughs> I mean, still not psychosexual. Yeah, yeah, enough for still him. not psychosexual <laughs> enough for him. I just, I just watched, I just, I, I say that because I just watched, um, uh, what's what's what are the two uh the two uh Cronenberg movies? The one oh, where right. Dead Ringers, Dead Ringers, and, and then also um Madame Butterfly. Oh sure, yeah. Oh, sure. So I just yeah, <laughs> that, that that movie is complicated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and a movie that, quite frankly, kind of doesn't exist in a weird way. Like it's not even people don't even think that Cronenberg made that movie. No, no, like... not at all. I feel like Cronenberg yeah. makes a lot of movies that people just forget are are real. You know, not, or not can't even, forget. It's not even that they don't exist. It's that they feel like a hallucination you had one time. <laughs> I, well, M Butterfly is just yeah, crazy, <laughs> crazy movie. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting to think of Jeremy Irons in this. That being said, I want to talk about the, the, the Gene Hackman performance. My, He's, uh, I, I'm sorry, sorry I have to tell yeah. Jeremy Irons yeah. story. Yeah, please, I interviewed please, him. Absolutely. I interviewed him for Watchmen. Because uh, I went, I I I bullshitted my way into going to the Watchmen press day in New York because I wanted to go to New York, which sure. is what I did yeah. at Vox all the time. And uh, yeah, he was like in a room by himself, just like eating little like olives. And I was like, I think they were olives. They might have been like like fucking capers or something. Who knows? And I just was like Beatles. asking him questions about like you know, because like I did at that point in the day, I didn't care. So I was just like asking him the sure. most basic ass questions about Watchmen and like playing. The character he plays i don't know why i'm not spoiling this but like and he just was like well i had no idea what i was doing but it was fun i had a good time it was wonderful best celebrity interview <laughs> he's i mean that sounds right that that that, that tracks 
the, the Gene Hackman of it all, I think, is interesting. I mean, the man's made a man made a million movies, so we're not going to go through his filmography. But I do wanted to kind of talk about where he is at this point in his career. Um, you know, he's he does this film in '92. He does The Firm in '93. Um, he's in Geronimo, an American legend, a movie I've never seen, uh, so I don't can't speak to that. Uh, Wyatt Earp, Quick in the Dead. He's doing a lot of westerns after this. It feels as though he's sort of in that mode. Um, he's playing and a lot of villains too. Like he always has played anti-heroic figures, but he's playing a lot of outright. Yeah. This is in the, the quick guy. in the dead. He is like he's he's just just straight up antagonist. Yeah. Like in this, Absolutely. in this, he's like in a he's not like I, I hesitate to call him a villain in Unforgiven. He is just sort of like he is he is a symbol of a certain kind of authority, mm-hmm. and totally people have different relationships to that. Yeah, yeah. He's got a he has a line at the end of this movie that I found really haunting. Um, I don't deserve to die like this. I was building a house. Um, it's it's moments before Will shoots him in the face with a shotgun. <laughs> um, but there is something about all the scenes of him building that house and how um, how much it means to him. Like when, when Saul Rubinek makes that sort of joke about uh, firing the person that constructed the house because there's so many leaks in the roof and you could tell how much that hurts him. Like this house really is this sort of personification of I am building something. I am, I, which I think is the way he sees his town as well. Like I think he really does believe that he's doing good. Traditionally, like uh, uh, I filter everything through Deadwood because it's a show I've seen 10 billion times and I love that show. But like, traditionally like in these stories you have a house and it's in a town and that means that society is here and like the fact that like but like so like the fact that there's like leaks in the roof and everything's like has sort of a real symbolic import um uh, on deadwood it is a very like it's a you you build a house and trap yourself in a sham marriage (laughs) (laughs) yeah like like anyone does um (laughs) but i but i do think that you know, the casting of Hackman is key because, you know, as you just sort of illustrated, Jamel, that like he's playing a lot of villains around this point, but he also plays just very complicated guys. If you look yeah. at, you know, French Connection, if you look at these characters, he's always sort of playing this duality of him. He's also very human and very funny. I mean, in 95, he's got Quick of the Dead, Crimson Tide, and Get Shorty. I mean, those are three drastically different movies, and it just goes to show the range that, that Gene Hackman had. It's key to cast him in this role. I feel like I I've... think. Go ahead. In addition, in addition to that element of his range, I recently so I recently saw the conversation. We we have a local theater in town that does lots of repertory stuff, and so it's like it's nice. really great. And I, I recently saw the conversation there. I guess they, there's a new a new restoration. And what I was struck by, kind of uh, uh, paradoxically, given them seeing him on the big screen, is how small he seemed to make himself through so much of that movie, like how small and vulnerable. And I feel like that's a, an aspect of Gene Hackman's range that doesn't get enough attention that he's very capable of making himself seem quite vulnerable. And that kind of comes through in this movie and this guy asserting authority, um, but also not, he's not like it, like in the quick and the dead, he's, he's like this invulnerable Titan. Although there are scenes where like you get some of the vulnerabilities sort of like, this is, to some extent, like a, a projection I'm doing, but in Unforgiven, uh, little Bill is like part of his willingness to exert uh, violence is a sense that sort of like all of this is quite shaky. The house, the house is leaking, right? Sort of mm-hmm. like all not, my 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 actual hold 
on this little bastion of civilization is not as strong as it appears. And uh, uh, if I do not keep an iron fist, then uh, we will once again be the frontier. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Totally. I uh uh I've told this story in like six podcasts now, so there's no reason for me Great. to tell again, but I'm going to. Fantastic. Uh, I yeah. genuinely like he did Royal Tenenbaums, and that felt like that was the last movie. That felt like a and like, but he had such a miserable time making it that he made a few more. But so you know, Welcome to Mooseport ends up being the last one. But he's Classic. in one episode of Diners, Drive-ins, and Drives. Yes, Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives, and it's the last thing he's ever been on camera for. And I hope and it he seems remains. So happy. He's so like, happy. He's so happy. He's just <laughs> sitting there in a restaurant in Santa Fe eating his eggs, and Guy Fieri comes up and is like, "Hey, how you doing?" And he's like, "I'm fine." It's not clear that Guy recognizes him at all. It's wonderful. Yeah. Perfect television. It's wonderful. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I, yeah. I assume that Guy does not know who he is whatsoever. Yeah. Like, hey, look at this. <laughs> look at this old man. Yeah. Look at this happy old man. Look at this old man with weird screen presence. I'm going to get him on camera. (laughs) I am. So on the Hackman thing, I wanted to talk for a second about the the jail scene with with Bob and Bouchamp and him talking about Bob shooting an unarmed man. Basically, a gun explodes in the guy's hand and he doesn't have it. And it's... This idea of shooting an unarmed man is something that comes up a lot in this movie of, you know, killing someone who uh, can't defend themselves, I guess, to one, in one way or another feels like the worst sin you can possibly do in this world. It's a pretty big sin. I just want to be clear yeah, on that. It's, it's not, a bad really, thing. Yeah. I, I would it's rather someone not kill me if I'm, yeah, in general. Oh, no, but but it's <laughs> just, it just feels like people say that a lot, even at the end. Yeah. You've got uh, you've got Saul Rubinek or Beauchamp being like, I don't have a gun. Mm-hmm. It's just this idea that like that's the thing, and and it comes back to sort of the the sins thing I was talking about earlier. But this feeds into when Will is sick. Will gets beaten by by uh, little Bill at one point, and he's close to death, and he's got a fever, and he's having all these visions of all of not all of them necessarily, but of people he's killed coming back to him. This idea of sort of what is the afterlife mm-hmm. what 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 have i what have i done what do i have on the other side of this mm-hmm. all of his sort of worst fears come to life i think is uh, is wonderful i think if you die and everyone you've ever wronged gets to have like five minutes to tell you like how you failed them that sounds like i don't know I, i'd sit that through sounds it like... yeah. <laughs> but, but it, it's just i i think it's it's interesting because i i don't know i i i this doesn't seem like a particularly religious movie. You know what I mean? This movie mm-hmm. doesn't really deal with religion. And Emily, obviously, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But um, it, it does feel pretty agnostic about God. So these visions feel like the closest thing that we that we get to that. It's, yeah, it's vaguely Christian. Like it has that, It's I, I'd even go so far as to say it's vaguely Protestant. Like it's not, okay. it's sure. not actual, but it is in that sort of way of, you know, again, the church entering these spaces was a sign of society entering these spaces. Certainly there were informal churches among, you know, uh, the, the folks who worked along the trails. But like once you plunk down that church, like that was sort of the sign of like society is here. You had a, 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 a church first and then like a town hall and then like a school. Right, and like right. when you when you watch the, the old Westerns, that is often like the iconography they're working with. So it is interesting that the church is absent here. But I think that's because like, you know, uh, if you have a good hearted preacher or uh, an evil preacher or whatever trope you have there, it just kind of doesn't. The movie's moral universe 
needs less certainty than religion will provide. Uh, even uh, even the most complicated view of religion has a more like strong moral center than I think this movie wants to have. So it it is like, but it is also vaguely like, yeah, God is like somewhere. I think a lot of Clint Eastwood's movies are about like realizing that God is somewhere, but he's not paying attention right now. Yeah. Do you feel like Jamal? Do you feel like uh, you know Clint talks about religion? Because I don't really. I'm trying to think of movies where he does and. No, I, he doesn't. He the, religion doesn't really seem explicitly to enter the picture. I think Emily's right that there's like the divine exists in the world of Clint Eastwood movies, right? But it's the presence is not. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's not necessarily felt. I don't know. That's the interesting question. I, I keep, I'm thinking of like Sully where, sure. you know, he lands the plane and the movie is like, well, this guy is exceptionally skilled. But sort of the fact that everything, it, it's so unlikely that it like, should, like I feel like there's a suggestion that sort of like, well, like God was on this guy's side and mm-hmm. sort of like part, part of, part of like the conflict of the movie is like, well, how are you going to, how are you going to, how, how are you going to railroad this guy <laughs> that God clearly blessed with his favor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of railroading in the back half I, of the Clint's Oh yeah, yeah. This guy gets, guy, guy, guy getting railroaded by the government, by the media. Clint, Clint should make a Jesus movie because he, he got railroaded. He got railroaded. He got. That would be so good. Uh, that's so funny. Yes, the ultimate, the, the ultimate guy who got railroaded, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it feels that way. I mean, my God, it's incredible. I I do think though that he, it's just, it kind of comes back to the fact that I think Clint, in his own way, is sort of an unknowable filmmaker. You know what I mean? Like you just you can't an unknowable figure to some degree. 
and and I wonder whether or not he doesn't want to spoon feed his audience. He doesn't want to give them something. I, I wonder if he likes that ambiguity. If that's if that's part of um, something that he's drawn to as a filmmaker. Because I look, I'm tr- like I'm just thinking about his filmography, or at least the films of his that I've seen, and I just do find it kind of fascinating that you can't really pinpoint him. He doesn't really want to be put in a box. I don't know if that's laziness. I don't know if that's like intent. It's hard to say. It feels like it has to be intent because there's just there 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 are there are recurring themes. Like there are things he returns to again and again. Um, uh, I I think I think he is I think he is self consciously being ambiguous about yeah. yeah about where he where he falls and wants sort of the films to speak for themselves. And once he just sort of like, you know, take them seriously on their on their own terms, um, he, yeah, he definitely has gone through phases in his career, but he like is constantly like mixing up genre in a, in a fascinating way. But like, obviously, as we alluded to, he's in his this guy was railroaded phase right now. But like, it's you know, the violence thing is the thing that he keeps coming back to through all of those i'm thinking about after unforgiven he made a spate of movies that were kind of like you know who does it great old guys and it's like that kind of culminates in space cowboys a very fun movie. Space cowboys great movie. very fun a movie, movie. A, a movie i went to go see at the movie theaters for a friend's 13th birthday <laughs> now, if anything screams 13th birthday party it's space yeah. cowboys, it's space cowboys. <laughs> um but yeah like i i think you know, you look at a movie like Firefox, which is this like weird sci-fi sure. thing that like uh-huh. is like not very good, but he's also just like he's fascinated in all genres as long as they're sort of narrowly interpreted through a very specific lens of being interested in questions of violence and heroism and like yeah. what it means to be uh, a, a man who upholds a certain code. And yeah. obviously I'm using man very he has films about women sure, and all that sure, but sure. it is he's like he is like he'll make any movie in any genre based on that and anytime he kind of strays from that idea is when he kind of kind of struggles uh midnight in the garden of good and evil a very very strange That's a weird movie, movie. That's i, I a just weird uh movie. i just watched for for my own podcast i just watched mm. jay edgar his 2011 it's not very good but it is yeah. it is along these lines where, like he's interested in jake or hoover as this sort of like guy as this guy who is trying to uphold a particular sort of like moral and political order, but who is also sort of like neurotic and insane. Yeah. Um, and sort of like the, the, and, and in some sense, sort of like uh, uh, not honest with himself. And he's like, in that movie, he's what's very interesting, sort of like the, the clash of these two things, a guy who is not honest with himself. And in some sense, isn't honest with the country either. That's what he finds very interesting about Hoover. Also interesting about Hoover, I mean, this is not it, but the movie deals with sort of very young Hoover and very end of life Hoover, but kind of skips middle of life Hoover, which is when Hoover was this sort of like nationally recognized and quite popular figure. And I, I think it's interesting that sort of like that's not, we don't get to spend much time with Herbert Hoover, I mean, not Herbert Hoover, but Jagger Hoover, when he is um, uh, arguably one of the most popular people in the country or political figures in the country. You ever just think about how at the end of being the Ricardos, the big conclusion Aaron Sorkin comes up with is 
Desi Arnaz calls J. Edgar Hoover, and J. Edgar Hoover's like, Lucy's not a communist, and everyone's like, yes. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, that movie you know, I, I never saw Being the Ricardos well, in this I'm show. sorry, I just spoiled it for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, this, funny enough, I'm less likely to see it now that I know that this is a plot point. <laughs> um, I I do think though because I'm I, I'm looking at sort of the later half of of uh, or the the post unforgiven portion of of Eastwood's directorial credits. I love Bridges of Madison County. I, I mean, I really great I, movie. Yeah, I think that movie's wonderful, and I think it does show a different gear to Clint than I think anyone had seen previously uh, as a filmmaker and as an actor. Um, but you know, he also just you know absolute power or true crime, blood work. These are all just like. These are anonymous movies, movies that, like, honestly don't exist. I, so, um, Absolute uh, Power is great. Absolute is Power it? is wonderful. It, it is Clint Eastwood being like, I could stop Bill Clinton from getting his dick sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, Perfect. I, I remember William, William Goldman wrote a movie with Eastwood. I think it was Absolute Power. And he, like, wrote in his book about, like, how Eastwood, he turned it in. Eastwood was like, no notes. And he was like, what? He's like, I had to work with this guy again. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I obviously like Eastwood wins Best Picture twice, which is wild. But he wins wow. again for Million Dollar Baby in 2004. And like that is a I, – I love that movie. I have never revisited it. I think it is. But I also think it's like an interesting like political statement from him because it's very much like Clint Eastwood sort of believes on some level we all have to take care of each other. And that we're all like people yeah. like he believes that, but like, also that just is like, sometimes the way we take care of each other is we shoot other people and you're like, okay. And like million dollar baby is like, sometimes the way we take care of each other is like, we, we, we gracefully kill you so that you can like have your, your life or whatever. Another thing about Clint, oh, that movie was hard. To another, watch. I, I didn't know what it was until I sat in the theater. Oh yeah. I didn't either. But I, 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 another thing about Clint Eastwood movies outside of Unforgiven is they often have one scene that's just dog shit. And like the rest of the movie's great million dollar baby, the famous example where like her family shows up and it's Margot Martindale. And you're like, what the fuck is this scene doing here? <clears throat> I mean, he, yeah, it, it What's interesting, the flags of our father's letters from Iwo Jima sort of back to back, the sort of two sides of that war, I thought was a really fascinating experience. Again, again, <laughs> I don't know why I'm getting balloons. What's going on? I got to turn off these things. Um, but but I thought that was just really interesting the way that he sort of, it's an interesting experiment. I don't know that either of those films totally work for me, but I thought that it, that, that was maybe the most, the boldest experiment he had done up until that point, until he cast the guys in five, 15, 17 to Paris. <laughs> the guys that were actually on the train. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that movie. That's that's a weird movie. That's really strange. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 funny because it is kind of like an avant-garde thing to do. And you're yeah. like, who is the filmmaker who did this? And it's like, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> it's a crazy thing to do. I, uh, yeah, uh, I, he's done a lot of movies that I mean, Invictus, Hereafter. These are movies that kind of. That's his Oscar know. phase when he's like, "I want to get that third Best Picture, baby," and that then he enters the railroading phase. And it's, Jersey Boys, what a career! What a my career. wife, my, my wife really likes Jersey Boys, the movie or the play, the movie. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I've, I've yeah, what what yeah, what does what does she yeah. love about it? <laughs> I think she just likes the four seasons. They're great. They're great. <laughs> I just like, I, you know, I think like 
a musical is a, a, a genre that trips up a lot of great filmmakers, uh, and uh, Clint Eastwood is one of them. That's my take on Jersey Boys. Why? Why I, do you think, think that is? Yeah. The uh, the the why, genre, why why trips up why the why the genre trips up a lot of filmmakers? I think because it involves a kind of filmmaking rhythm that is increasingly out of favor. Like there, uh, Eastwood is not like Eastwood. The example is just he's so sparse, and and musicals want to be a little bit big, but like uh uh you know Spielberg obviously West Side Story is is great, sure. and like he, what he understood is that like. It, but that like intuitively fits within his style of like doing these long wonders that then also have tiny little compositions within them that like make sense. Like the musical wants to be shot basically from the audience, if that makes sense. It wants like yeah, the can wants sure. the camera to be back from the stage and like you know, um, I don't hate New York, New York, but it is certainly like you see that and you're like you can feel Scorsese trying to pull the musical over to him, but the musical is like very hard to budge. Certainly, some filmmakers have, but. I, I would I've also al- say, sorry, go ahead, please. No, I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, I just really quickly, I've always wanted to, I've always thought that Spike Lee could make a good musical. Yes, this yeah, is, absolutely. This is, a, this, this is a, a, a very strongly held opinion of mine. I feel like he has one in him. Mm-hmm. His uh, film documentary of Passing Strange, a wonderful Broadway show, is like one of my favorite projects of his. Uh, his uh, his American Utopia uh, film that he did with David Byrne is also terrific. So uh, yeah, I agree with no, you. No, he 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 would make a tremendous musical. I, I think part of it too is uh, a filmmaker that makes a movie in thirty nine days is probably not going to make a great musical. <laughs> like he's just not a guy who's going to take the time to do multiple takes and do the coverage and whatever. He's just like, I, I got to go. I got to like a round yeah, of golf yeah. to play or whatever. Like I just I just don't think you just he doesn't even, he doesn't even seem enthusiastic enough for it. You know, it's sort of like you can just imagine. You know, you get the dancers ready to go and Clint's just like, all right, go ahead. <laughs> The fact that he doesn't say action is one of my favorite things about Clint. He just says, go ahead. <laughs> it's and when and he doesn't say cut, he says, that's enough of that. <laughs> that that to me is so funny. It's so can you can you imagine you are acting you're acting for your life and you're trying to do like pouring out emotion and Clint's just like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> That'd be so demoralizing. Like I just, I just can't imagine. It's, uh, it's tremendous. And the man it's, has it's directed fantastic. multiple Academy Award nominated, yeah. or Academy Award winning performances. He For like sure. obviously knows how to work with actors, and yet he's still just like, oh. yep, good work. So, good work. Some yeah. of it is that he just trusts people, and some of it is that he's lazy. And it's, it's, it's great, wonderful. I'm glad he exists. It's wonderful, and I, I, absolutely. I think part of the reason also that he acts in his own films, I think to some degree, is that too, where he's just like, I know how to do this. I know how to get this done. Um, he's not in his next film, Jury Number Two, which I'm very curious about. Which is uh, Nicholas Holt is the lead in that film, uh, where he's a juror who who discovers that he might be responsible for the person on for the murder that person's on trial for. <laughs> Railroaded. <laughs> Railroaded. Also feels very reminiscent of like a like an early '90s Harrison Ford picture. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or a John Grisham book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's yeah. But um, so uh, to, to wrap this up, uh, Jamal, we do ratings on this podcast where we do zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being can, the highest. Can I yes, just, can I, I just want to talk about the big scene at the end. Please, please. This is, I, I was, uh, the big scene where um, 
they talk about death. The Schofield yep. kid and Will yep. is like that's when this movie goes from I'm really loving this movie to masterpiece for me. Like that that scene, this the thing where like Will then has another conversation with uh the, the sex worker who comes out of town and he turns back to the kid and the kid's just like, He's not gonna be living anymore, is he? And you're like, Oh my god, like there's a there's a profound like too few American movies are actually interested in the reality of death. Like they claim that they are, totally. they pretend to be, but like when they actually think about the concept that someday you're not going to exist anymore, they kind of like step back from that a little bit. And this is like one of the few, including in Eastwood's like filmography where he's made a lot of movies about death, but not one as forthright as this, that is just like interested in that thing. Like, Oh yeah, none of us are going to make it out alive. And, and, and maybe, uh, too often we uh, assist other people on their way to that that inevitable well, end. He, he has this amazing line where he says, uh, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that just really hit me. That That whole scene is the movie in a nutshell, right? Of just sort of this idea of the the power of taking a person's life um and and then later he has that line where he says i've always been lucky when it comes to killing people um it's i totally agree with you it it goes into the void right like this movie just you know uh fearlessly goes there yeah yeah anyway i just wanted to bring it up i think it's a great scene (laughs) that's me just talking no i no i i i I absolutely agree with you um the the reason we're going to rate this film and then jamel i'm curious as to your thoughts on the film we're covering next week which is a movie that i imagine you will have thoughts on um so we do a ranking zero to 99 uh i mean i think this movie is a 95 i mean i i mean I, i i think it's pretty impeachably brilliant um i do think it's my favorite uh clint eastwood film but um where are you emily where do you fall in this movie uh yeah i i when i saw this movie the first time in like the 2000s i was probably like a 94 i think i'm up to like a 97 uh the sure. only two 92 movies i like more are uh twin peaks firewalk with me and malcolm x and sure. i think all three of these are like major masterworks from directors who are among my favorites uh, i think this movie's uh I think this movie is pretty perfect, and weirdly, because uh, Clint Eastwood didn't touch the script, uh, the queer phobia scale is like a two, where you know all these people, you A, you know all these people hate gay people, but B, you also know they're all like kind of having sex with each other, and you're like, okay. 100%, that. for sure, for sure. Jamel, where, where do you fall on that? Uh, where do you rate this movie? I, I'd, I'd say 95 as well. I think that, to to Emily's point a little earlier, um, this is a movie that really does deal quite forthrightly with sort of how like morally corrosive it is to do violence to another person that like, it's the kind of thing that one doesn't really come back from like will money that never comes back from it. And while he, he thanks his deceased wife for pulling him away from it. He seems to recognize it's sort of like, there's nothing he can really do to, to make himself whole again. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really interesting to have, um, not, not just like an American movie, but sort of a big prestige studio picture, um, released a year after the Gulf war, right. That's just sort of like violence is the worst thing we can do to each other. And there's no coming back from it. It's just sort of, it's a very final thing. Um, uh, and I think, I think that's sort of like a kind of profound thing to have out in the world. 
in in that way. So yeah, ninety five. It's just and, and like we've said, it's it's beautiful to look at. It's like you know the the Gene Hackman sort of monologuing in the jail. It's just sort of so, so pleasurable to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. It's also you know we talked about this. We have we have talked about all of the best picture nominees at this point, Emily. I Hell believe. yeah, I think we have. Uh, yeah. I think we have. Uh, Unforgiven, Howard's End, A Few Good Men, Scent of a Woman, and The Crying Game. Um, it's a real. I'll say real this: the around. only one of those that I don't like is Scent of a Woman. I like all of them to some degree, uh, though this yeah. and Howard's End are clearly a cut above the others. Yeah, this this. I mean, it, it's interesting w- watching this again. You know. And I'd never seen Howard's End. Have you seen Howard's End, Jamel? I've never seen Howard's End. Yeah, it's a very, very good movie. Um, and and I was really kind of blown away by it. And I was curious as to seeing this again. Which this movie is? I I do prefer this film to it. This movie is just head and shoulders above really all the nominees. Mm-hmm. And and but to your point that you were making, Jamel, like this is a dark ass movie. This is a really like nihilistic dark movie about. Um, how we kill people and how it kills us in the process and uh you know all the oscars all the flowers <laughs> it's just kind of amazing Yay. um so next week uh we have the king cast guys coming on eric Bestby oh, and God. scott wampler to talk about memoirs of an invisible man john Jesus. carpenter's <laughs> I know you're a big John Carpenter guy, Jamel, so I'm curious, not just your feelings on this movie, but also just to kind of get some thoughts on John Carpenter as a filmmaker from you. Um, Thoughts on John Carpenter as a filmmaker first. I, you know, (laughs) I am a big John Carpenter guy, a big John Carpenter guy because I admire his resourcefulness as a filmmaker. He is a guy who's never been blessed with very big budgets, but is able to sort of like ring out lots of incredible stuff with the resources he has. I think he is like one of our great political filmmakers and not just like an obvious movie, like they live, but sort of the thing, which may be my favorite Carpenter, I think is sort of like a brilliant movie about not just paranoia or whatever, but about like political life in such in like, in like conditions of duress. Um, uh, You know, if I, if I, if I were, if I had stuck to my like political theory thing, uh, in college and gone to grad school, like I totally could write like a paper about the thing um, sure. as a work of political theory. So I, you know, I, 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 I enjoy all of his movies. I, I enjoy the fact that uh, he seems to find lots of different kinds of things kind of frightening and scary and spooky. So it's not just slasher killers. It's not just monsters and aliens. It's not just capitalism. But like, uh, it's also the devil. It's like, hey, (laughs) devil's really fucking scary, guys. Um, So I, I don't know. I really, I, I, I've, I, I enjoy basically every John Carpenter movie except. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, <laughs> which I think has less to do with Carpenter and more to do with Chevy Chase. Yeah, um, being kind of like insufferable to watch on screen, uh, and kind of like there, th- there's a version of this movie that is like much bleaker and Carpenter esque. Sure. Uh, in that version of the movie, maybe it stars. Sam Neill in the title in the title role, sure, sure. And not Chevy Chase, but it does not does not star Chevy Chase. I, so I'm curious. I mean, when just on the Carpenter side, were you 
a young man when Carpenter got his hooks in you? Like, was was there a film of his that you saw that just really kind of blew you away? And I'm just kind of curious as to like when you saw Memoirs in your journey through through. Uh... Memoirs is more recent when I when I saw because the first Carpenter movie I ever saw was um, Big Big Trouble in Little China. Sure, and I was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, which I loved. Yep. Uh, and so, sort of like the Carpenter of like Halloween, A Big Trouble, of Escape from New York, which was a big sort of like Bowie household movie. Like my dad loves nice. that movie. <laughs> um, those were the things I kind of grew up watching. But like stuff like Memoirs of Miserable Man, or the the more kind of like uh, uh, Eltridge horror stuff. Like mm-hmm. that's that's more sort of as as an adult, I've watched I've watched that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and this, I think, I watched for the last, first time last year or two years ago. It was just sort of like, what am I doing? It's Why pretty. I- it's it's a rough watch. Uh, it, but I'll, I'll say this just because you mentioned he doesn't that that Carpenter didn't generally make studio movies, didn't get big budgets. I'll say that like I didn't like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, but all the invisible technology that he yeah. implemented looked pretty unbelievable like the, the, the guy is a technical filmmaker is just kind of unimpeachable yeah no i i i agree with that yeah I it, it's sort of like it, it, i wish he had been able to get this kind of budget for something that was like a, a, a passion project like right 100%. like for something that really was um that he was eager to do i really yeah. learned a lot watching that movie about how to play the stock market when you're invisible which like is is an important thing to know about it's it's an important thing for sure um Jabel, i can't thank you enough for coming on and talking with us about unforgiven i i know you're a very busy man i just saw you the other night on alex wagner's show uh so i i i, I can only i can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on here truly do you have uh, anything, my pleasure do you have anything oh. you want to plug any places people can find you online unclear yeah. and present danger great podcast i'll say yeah that. so i i got i got my podcast unclear and present danger about the political and military thrillers of the 1990s we just did an episode on nixon with the historian nikki hammer me and my co-host john gans great movie uh a great movie about america's uh most uh virgin president uh um richard m nixon uh spiritually virgin president uh, so we did that, and then we have a Patreon where we just did um, we just did Jay Edgar, uh, so we're kind of on kind of like a Nixon mid century kind of thing. Awesome. We previously watched Larry Cohen's the the Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, which is like a weird movie. Sure. Um, uh, so yeah, but yeah. lots of stuff on that. Uh, please listen; would appreciate it. And then you can find me at the New York Times. I have a column every Tuesday and every Friday, and I have a Saturday newsletter. Uh, and so if you if you are still a subscriber to the New York Times, which I understand people have mixed feelings about the New York Times, and I do not begrudge them those feelings. But if you are a reader, uh you should you should check out my stuff. Uh brilliant brilliant uh pieces. I, I do want to say uh I was in DC in twenty sixteen and we saw Rogue One together, and I don't know if you remember this because at the time I was living as a person shaped husk. Uh, I was not my current vibrant self, but like I, we said, we went to a bar to all talk about it. And by the time I realized who you were and how much I loved your work, it was like way too late for me to be like, I love your work. So I'm saying it now. (laughs) Thank you for seeing Rogue One with me. And I love your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, you know, we're wrapping up, but I got to say Rogue One, a movie that people get really mad at me for my opinion of, which is that I don't think it's very good. I... People, people love Rogue One, and I am always like, 
the first two thirds of that movie are incoherent. I think I, that uh, I let was, me just very quickly. Yeah, I'll just ahead. say this. Um, I, I think that part of the reason people like Rogue One is because they dislike so much of the new Star Wars output that they put it as one of the better ones. Um, but to your point, Jamal, I think it's also a bit of a mess. I mean, last last Jedi and force awakens are so much better than rogue one. I like I love at Jedi. the time I was the one person in this conversation who kind of liked rogue one. And mm-hmm. I have been baffled. And like uh, Andor has re- retroactively made me like it slightly more, but I still am baffled by the reception to it. It did yeah. lead to the stupidest time. People got mad at me online. So that's fun. You can go look that really? up. Really? People got mad I at put, you online? I put in the headlines, the uh, rogue one is the first time a star Wars movie is engaged with the reality of war or something like that. And then, and people were like, but Wars is in the title. And then they all got mad oh, yeah. at me. Late yeah, 2016. Dumb, <laughs> dumb people. Um, dumb people. Dumb people. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that. I, re- I remember, And I remember thinking, well, that's obviously the case. Like, have, have you watched the Star Wars? Like, the Wars actually is not a big big part of the yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, again, thank you so, so much, Jamal. Uh, I hope to talk to, again in the future, but this was an absolute blast. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.